0: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Dent for the Podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Paul Martin as my guest. Paul is a chemical process development expert and defines himself as an antidote to marketing opium and a tireless advocate for a fossil fuel free future. He's also the founder of Speedfire Research. Today's episode is actually the first part of a trilogy, which intends to answer this simple question, will the hydrogen economy take off anytime soon, and will it have consequences for the water industry? As you'll hear in a minute, Paul will break a lot of wrong preconceptions you and I may have about hydrogen and its potential to turn the world on its head. You'll hear that he's even calling us out as useful idiots to a certain extent. Why? Well, I certainly won't spoil it now. You'll see that he's backing his explanations with a treasure of pedagogy and simple science, and if you want to go further in depth, I've linked you some of his articles in the episode show notes. Before starting, I'd also like to thank another Paul, Paul O'Callaghan, who shared with me an inside report on the hydrogen economy his team at Bluetech Research published end of 2021. As a hydrogen layman, that was a precious guide for me, full of insights, as the name states, and really catered to the water industry. The report itself is stored behind Bluetech's paywall, but I bet that if you drop a gentle mail at info at bluetechresearch.com, don't jump on your pen, the link is in the description. They may do you a favor. Finally, I know I'm asking you every week to please share the episode if you like it, but I'll double down today. This strategy took me 5 months to prepare and I've poured my soul into these 3 interviews and a lot of behind the scenes discussions. In the recap video, you'll find on my YouTube channel in a couple of days, you'll see how I've somehow even been working on it since 2011. So please, if you like it, share it and I'll see you on the other side.
1: For more information, visit gfps.com.
0: Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say, we have a very packed agenda for today, so I won't be spending too long on this opening, but there's this tradition which I really like, which is the postcard. So I'm going to ask you to send me a postcard from the place you're at right now, what can you tell me about Toronto that I would ignore by now?
2: Well, right now it's about minus 9 degrees uh, Celsius. It's uh, middle of January, so very typical weather here in, in January. You can see a lot of uh, steam rising out of people's natural gas furnaces and boilers, trying to keep their houses warm. But one of the things that's changed in Canada over the past uh, few years that's going to make a big difference over the longer term is that we now have a very durable and very interesting carbon tax that for one thing is gonna make it a lot more expensive for people to heat their homes. And that carbon tax is paired with a carbon dividend that gives everyone back the average amount of money that people pay in carbon tax. The idea there is that if you're poor and you're not consuming very much because you live in a multi-unit apartment and you take public transit everywhere, you don't pay much in carbon tax, but we, we want to reward you for your low consumption. So you actually get more money back than you pay extra in tax and your life becomes easier. But if you're living in a big house and you're driving a big vehicle like the one that ruined my, elect- my homemade electric car, uh, you're going to pay a lot of tax. But of course, you have a lot of capital to spend to do things better. And so this system is widely supported in Canada. It's survived two federal elections. It's survived a Supreme Court challenge. It's the law of the land, and it's headed to 170 Canadian dollars per tonne CO2 by 2030. So it's really going to make a big difference in the country. So I'm delighted by that fact and and really looking forward to seeing the changes that it makes in our society as a result.
0: It's very interesting because your postcard gives us a clear hint towards what we're going to be discussing in the rest of this podcast So I guess if people didn't guess it, it's going to be about this carbon aspect, this hydrogen aspect. There's going to be probably also steam and gas involved at some point. So it's like a jigsaw of the next minutes. So thanks for that. Plus, you're not my first guest from Toronto and you're the first one to tell me that story, which I didn't know at all. And which sounds brilliant if you ask me. But I won't sidetrack you from the first question on. I'd like to get to know you a bit better beyond the 2 million views of your various LinkedIn posts in 2021. Can you guide me through your path over the past 25 years? I've heard that you were even involved with water at some point. That's right. At the beginning of
2: my career, I worked developing water treatment technology and trying to remediate groundwaters that were contaminated by industrial chemicals. And then 25 years ago, I joined a company that designs and builds pilot plants. We're actually the world's largest designer and builder of pilot plants. And I'm still active with them, but only part-time. And I I partially own that company as well. But I have a private consultancy called Spitfire Research where I serve the needs of people that are are looking to try to make earnest efforts towards decarbonization, but their, their projects aren't to the stage where they need a pilot plant built yet. And in that time, in that 25 years working with a company that designs and builds pilot plants, we've seen every kind of new chemical process technology you can imagine from the sublime to the ridiculous. And some of them have been brilliant successes and have made a huge difference to decarbonization and and some, um, not so much. The thing that I've always found very frustrating in the business is that people will come and they have a great idea for how to decarbonize something and it will make money But only if we put a price on dumping CO2 to the atmosphere. And then we don't put a price on dumping CO2 to the atmosphere, and then they don't make any money. And and, uh, after a time, that gets very frustrating, as you can imagine. So, But yeah, I've been involved in all that time, obviously, as a chemical engineer, making and using hydrogen and synthesis gas is it's a big part of the business, and it's something that I'm intensely familiar with. Back in the late 90s, for instance, I was involved in projects. We were trying to make small reformer reactors for the purpose of making uh, hydrogen out of natural gas to feed. First, it was going to be vehicle fuel cells, and then later it was going to be fuel cells for combined heat and power in homes. And so I was intensely uh, interested in hydrogen and have been for a long time. But Working on that project really got me familiar with the the thermodynamics and the fundamental properties of the hydrogen molecule. And they made me realize, honestly, what a false hope hydrogen was as a decarbonization strategy. And frankly, since the, the late 90s, not much has changed. I think we're more earnest in desiring decarbonization. And renewable electricity is also getting cheaper and cheaper. Those two things have changed. But technology-wise, and in terms of the properties of hydrogen and its thermodynamics, nothing's changed. So I find it very exasperating to watch this most recent exuberance, this hyperbole that I've been calling it the hopium addiction, you know, uh, thinking of people's hope being turned into an opium that's used to delude them into thinking that things are solutions when they're really not. And I, I find that very frustrating because I think it's distracting us from real and earnest decarbonization. So we have to be careful there. Hydrogen's Hydrogen's is great. It's a molecule we use in giant quantity. It's essential. We depend on it for our very lives, honestly, through ammonia. But half the humans on the planet survive because we can make Haberbosch uh, ammonia right now. And we make it all from black hydrogen that's made from fossil fuels without carbon capture. And we have to fix that. And that's really important. But hydrogen is not really a decarbonization strategy it's more a decarbonization problem we haven't even begun to solve and one that we we must solve and so i find it very frustrating that people want to waste it as a fuel
0: there's a lot to unpack in what you just said i think we're going to come back to these colors black hydrogen gray hydrogen green hydrogen and all the colors the
2: colors of euphemism i call it <laughs>
0: But right before, I'd like to stop a last time before we go to the deep dive. I actually discovered your work through your fight against opium, this combination of hope and opium. First, what is opium and why did you strive to fight it? So, opium,
2: I agree with Goethe, you know, the, the great German author. And he said that in all things, hope is preferable to despair. And when you think about that, it's, it's got to be pretty much true, except for one thing. I think Goethe would probably have said, well, except when your hope requires uh, the laws of physics to be set aside. You know, if, if you're falling from a cliff and your hope resides in gravity suddenly not working, your hope is false. It's not getting you anywhere. <laughs> so it's really kind of pointless. Hopium is what, what happens when people's hope Is used as a drug to set aside their rational thinking and either cause them to waste their money or cause their governments to waste their money, you know, to expend it in a way that's foolish. Or it's, it's used to pretend that the problem is being solved when really it's being delayed and real solutions are being put off because they're uncomfortable. There's lots of hopium in the world of all sorts. There's hopium related to energy storage. There's hopium related to hydrogen. There's hopium related to batteries. It's not just hydrogen, but hydrogen is the most egregious example of hopium. Pushing and selling and dealing and consumption and um, you know the opium clouding people's judgment. It's it's the most obvious example.
0: So let's go to our deep dive on hydrogen, to give you a bit of background and as an introduction to that conversation. I was reading the BlueTech Insight report on the hydrogen economy. I'm a water guy, so to me hydrogen is trendy and fancy. And you'll tell me to which extent I'm falling victim to opium, but by reading the report. It turns out that what Bluetech is saying is that there is something happening. Don't expect it to be as big as people say and what you can hear left and right. But nevertheless, as the water industry, you should maybe prepare to something happening around hydrogen. They go of course much more in depth than what I'm trying to summarize now in under one minute. Yet, when I first discussed with you, I told you that I'm investigating this relationship between hydrogen and the water industry. And you were straightforward. You said, this is not a podcast. That is a five-minute discussion because there is no relationship. And that is the first thing I'd like to understand. What makes you so affirmative to say that there is no relationship between hydrogen, which can be to a certain extent made from water, and the water industry?
2: Sure. It's really easy. So there are two sides to this. So the first side is, I think, probably about five times per day on LinkedIn, which is where I'm most active with my commentary and so on. I encounter this concern from people that say, oh, well, you know, if we make hydrogen from water by electrolysis, it's going to use a lot of water. And oh, the amount of water is just mind boggling. And it's not a good idea because of the water use. And I have to reply to them and say, look, Let's say that you want to make one kilogram of hydrogen. To make one kilogram of hydrogen, you need nine kilograms of water, nine liters of water. And the water has to be pure. So let's say it's 10 because maybe we're going to waste one. Whatever. This is fine. So just 10 to make it easy. So 10 kilograms of water per kilogram of hydrogen to desalinate enough seawater to make 10 kilograms of fresh water, of, of pure water by reverse osmosis, takes 0.035 kilowatt hours. Okay, so a a small fraction of of a single kilowatt hour. And to make a kilogram of hydrogen from that takes between 50 and 65 kilowatt hours. So you tell me, is water use a major issue with relation to hydrogen production? Or is it energy use? And by the way, to make 50 or 65 kilowatt hours of electricity, by say a thermal power plant it doesn't matter which one whether it's nuclear or or coal or natural gas takes orders of magnitude more water than 10 kilograms (laughs) you know so that's the one side the one side is that hydrogen's issue is energy use it's not water use if you don't you have a problem with water and you have access to a brackish well or wastewater or the ocean It's far better for you to not make one kilogram of hydrogen and instead use that energy to purify water so that you have water for whatever you need water for than it is to make hydrogen out of it. I mean, that's that's rather obvious. Then the other side of it is the relationship, if there is any, between wastewater treatment and hydrogen. And, and there's a number of different people going on about, okay, well, we make, you know, we can do anaerobic digestion of biosolids and we can make biogas, which is a mixture of methane and CO2. And we can use the, we can separate off the CO2 and then we can use the methane to make hydrogen. And this, sort of thing. I mean there are lots of there's a lot of energy used in waste, wastewater treatment and so on. It's used in various forms. But a lot of this thinking just it arises from ignorance of what hydrogen's about and, and how it's used industrially and what it takes to store it and use it, and what it's worth and why it costs, what it costs and, and the like. There are a lot of processes that make small amounts of hydrogen, often mixed with other gases. And because of the difficulty in bringing that material to market, it's used as a fuel. And that arises from the fact that hydrogen is, I mean, it's a bulky molecule. There's a very low density, uh, even at high pressures and even as a liquid. I mean, as a liquid at 24 Kelvin temperature, it's only 71 kilograms per cubic meter, you know. So as a consequence, that bulkiness makes it hard to move. And by hard to move, I don't mean impossible. I mean, we do move hydrogen, quite a lot of it around in the world. But only about 8% of the hydrogen that we make in the world is moved any distance at all. 92% of it is used right where it's made. When industry does something to that extreme extent, we're not talking about 30% or 50% being moved and 50% being used on site. But 92% is used on site. That's generally for good reasons, and it is in this case for good reasons that, that you know, I won't bore you with the with the details, but it's for good reasons. We don't move hydrogen around much because it's lossy and expensive to move around. So, you know, producing small amounts of hydrogen from wastewater treatment plants, it's kind of nonsense. It's something you could do. It doesn't make any sense.
0: It'd be much better to just use the methane. We'll come back to, to that wastewater part because I have many questions on that one. But let's start with what you just explained about the use of water. You're right, it sounds like focusing rather on the energy side of the equation makes more sense than looking to water. If I have to pick between the 50 to 65 kilowatt hour which are needed to produce green hydrogen and the 3 to 5 kilowatt hour I need to desalinate water, it sounds like a no brainer. But now let's say that I stay within my silo and only look at the water side of the equation. My only concern is to supply you water with sufficient quality so that you can produce green hydrogen out of it. That still makes for a lot of water. So if people raise you that concern five times per day, don't you think it is because that concern is somewhat legit.
2: No, it's, it's because they misanalyze the problem. That's what's going on. They don't understand that our issue with water is the gargantuan quantity of water that we use, most of which we use in a wasteful, foolish way. That's our issue with water. And you're talking about 0. 0.035 kilowatt hours to make 10 kilograms or three and a half kilowatt hours to make a cubic meter of fresh water from seawater. Just about any treatment process that's starting with a water that's not as contaminated as seawater is going to take less than that, right? And yet we find water treatment to be a big deal. Why is that? Because we use millions of cubic meters of the stuff. That's the issue. So this amount that we might use to make hydrogen, it's really neither here nor there. It's trivial. It's, it's often the, the bushes. And if you're starting with reverse osmosis, you can start with wastewater, if you like. I mean, it's all a matter of, of economics at that point. It's, it's not really an issue where you have to concern yourself with availability of water. So, for instance, there are these projects that people are talking about doing in places where hydrogen production might make sense. I'll give you an ex- a little bit more detail about what I mean there. To make hydrogen from water, you need gargantuan amounts of electricity for the reason that was mentioned. And if you want to make that hydrogen green, you're going to have to make it from electricity that's made from wind and solar. So because electrolyzers are not cheap, in fact, they're very expensive. They might get cheaper in the future, but right now they're very expensive. I mean, very, very expensive. You have to feed them continuously or as close to continuously as possible so that that very expensive asset can earn its living, okay? So, you know, I have an expensive car sitting in my driveway and I only drive it about 5% of the time, right? If I could find a way to make use of that car 95% of the time, its cost to me per kilometer of driving would be much, much lower, wouldn't it? It would make a lot more sense. Now, of course, I can afford to have a car sitting there most of the time because I derive enough value from the 5% of the time that I drive it that it's worth having it sit there 95% of the time. But that's because the car is not so expensive. If you look at an electrolyzer, you can't have it sit there 95% of the time and only make hydrogen from it 5% of the time when electricity comes to you for free, okay? You have to have the electricity available at high capacity factors. So if you look in the world, it's very easy to analyze this. What you need, you need very specific conditions. You need a desert, okay? And it needs to have an ocean to the west. And when that happens, what you get is this perfect combination of you get nice access to sunlight to, you know, high capacity factor solar, And then every night as the sun's going down, the land starts to cool down and the wind's blowing off the ocean. So you get this perfect pairing of sun and wind with maybe a 70% capacity factor combined between the wind and the sun. And those places are places like Western Australia, Chile, maybe Namibia, maybe Morocco. There's a number of places in the world that don't have quite perfect conditions. But these conditions exist in those places in the world. And what's, I mean, they're they're all deserts. So, of course, what does that mean for water? Well, of course, you have to be near the sea for this to work, right? So you have access to seawater. So you're going to do desalination. Well, the nice thing is that if you set up desalination, to make pure water for the purpose of making hydrogen, it's not that difficult to make some extra water for the purposes of whoever is living there. You just build a somewhat larger plant and use it with higher capacity factor, for instance. So again, the issue isn't water use. Even in dry places in the world, the issue is energy use because the thing that separates clean water from dirty is energy, right? ultimately it's the sun, Right? We were taking clean water from lakes and rivers, which came from solar distillation off the oceans, largely, right, or from transpiration from plants and the like. So the, the thing that's driving this purification process is solar energy. So water is actually a very low dollar value, but very high intrinsic value a form of stored solar energy.
0: That's absolutely clear, thanks. Let's go back to your ammonia story. Today, this is the main use of hydrogen through the Haber-Bosch process.
2: about a third of hydrogen consumption. But yeah, it's okay. about 40 million of 120 million tons of hydrogen used per year. But it's the one that
0: our lives depend on. The yeah, others we could live without. So if that's one third, what are the other two thirds? Petrochemical applications?
2: About a third is made from and used in the petrochemical industry, mostly to remove sulfur from gasoline and diesel and other fuels, uh, jet fuel, before we burn it. And so that's about 40 million tons. And we'll need about 10 of those 40 in the future because we'll still in the future need chemicals and we'll need plastics and the like. So we're going to keep using petroleum for those purposes and we'll need to desulfurize that. Portion, but three quarters of the barrel right now we're burning, and we don't need to desulfurize that in the future if we don't burn it. So we don't need that hydrogen. And the other third is used for other things like the direct reduction of iron for making chemicals like methanol and in a myriad of other things. It's used as a coolant in gas turbines, and oh my goodness, there's a million uses for hydrogen. There are numerous, but they're fairly small. So those are the big ones. Direct reduction of iron, ammonia, methanol, desulfurization of petroleum, and as a chemical reagent, as a reducing agent, for instance.
0: So we have these 40 megatons, which are the ones used today for the production of ammonium through the Haberbosch process and that is done today with gray hydrogen right gray is a lie okay let's call it let's call a
2: spade a shovel here this is not gray it's black in fact it's ultra black it's black hole black it's 30% blacker than the fossil fuel that it's made from per joule okay why so well if you start with 1 joule of uh, of methane lower heating value and you make hydrogen from it you only get 0.7 joules of hydrogen lower heating value and you get the same number of kilograms of CO two as you would get if you burned that natural gas in the first place. So it's thirty percent blacker than burning methane. If you're going to make hydrogen and then burn it, so that's what I mean by that. So this gray is is a euphemism. It's not a, it's not the truth. It's black. So let's call it what it is. It's black. Okay, and then you can make it blacker still if you make it from coal. Okay, because for every kilogram of hydrogen you make from methane, you get about 10 kilograms of CO2. For every kilogram of hydrogen that you make from coal, you get about 30 kilograms of CO2. So it's even blacker. I don't know how you say blacker than black,
0: but that's really it. But the majority of it is made from gas, right?
2: The majority of it is made from either gas or coal or petroleum. Gas is the most popular one because it's the cheapest way. And uh, petroleum, like I said, all of the hydrogen that's made from petroleum is used to refine petroleum. So it's more or less cancels itself out. And about 25% of it is made from coal, mostly in places like China and India where they don't have access to cheap natural gas.
0: So we have these 40 megatons of black hydrogen. If we want to decarbonize our world, that's the portion which is non-negotiable. It has to be done with hydrogen. So we have to replace grey, brown, black whatever we call it by a carbon friendly alternative that might be green hydrogen how would you do that
2: so the way i like to think of it is this so let's remember we were talking about 120 million tons in the first place Mm -hmm. and in a decarbonized future we're still going to need 90 okay Because 30 will go away when we stop desulfurizing fossils as as fuels, right? So we we need 90 million tons per year. So to make 90 million tons per year using the best electrolyzer in the world that you can buy, that's 50 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen. You can't afford that one, but that's okay. Let's assume you can scale those up to an enormous scale and make lots of them. That would mean that you would need 4,500 terawatt hours of electricity, Okay to make that 90 million tons of green hydrogen to replace the black hydrogen in the world that we'll still need, right? Well, in 2019, all of the wind and solar in the whole world added up to only 2,100 terawatt hours. So we would need more than twice as much wind and solar as we had in the whole world in 2019, just to decarbonize just the fraction of hydrogen that we'll need in a decarbonized future. And yet, we have all of these people frothing at the mouth talking about how there's going to be excess hydrogen to waste as a fuel. And how can you take them seriously? So, you can see my problem with this whole thing. It's not, the math doesn't add up.
0: Let me just try to scratch that surface because you say people promote it. Personally, I remember it was probably two years before the pandemic in 2018. I was at the European Utility Week in Vienna and, as a an humble energy muggle, I've attended two full days of conferences explaining how hydrogen was the future and how the grid in Germany was about to fall apart as there was too much of electricity at night when wind was blowing and nobody consuming. And my take-home message was that if you didn't use hydrogen in a power-to-X approach, you were in big, 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 big trouble. And now that I've read your various articles, I'm starting to think this was hopium and a part of it might even be just pure lies. Yeah, (laughs) some of it is motivated selling, you know? Exactly. That was going to be my question. How much of that is people really believing that hydrogen is the future and how much is just people having something to sell?
2: It's a little hard to say. I'm a very rude man, okay? And and I'm old. I'm not that old. But I'm old enough that I've stopped caring quite so much about whether people think that I'm being polite with them or not. And as a consequence, the way I view hydrogen is that the hydrogen is being pushed by two groups of people. It's being pushed by the fossil fuel industry for whom it's a win-win situation. And it's being pushed by hydrogen's useful idiots Okay. I don't know if you recall, but back in, the, back in the era of the Cold War, the Soviets used to refer to the socialists in Western countries as their useful idiots. You know, Their hearts were in the right place, perhaps. They were worried about the social conditions of their population. But they were serving the interests by manipulation of the Soviet apparatus. And so hence, they were referred to not just as ordinary idiots, but useful idiots. And so the useful idiots in the hydrogen regime... They're uh, people that think they're going to make giant amounts of renewable electricity that nobody will know what to do with. And so they have to find something to do with it. So they're going to make hydrogen. And it's people that sell electrolyzers and and fuel cells and entities like Airbus that, you know, get paid by dubious governments to to design aircraft, whether they ever get built or not. You know, so people that are in a moral hazard position in that they benefit whether the thing that they're promoting is a success or a failure. And you'll note that I I said that hydrogen is a win-win situation for the fossil fuel industry. I've long thought that, but Michael Liebreich, who founded uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, put it best when he said that for the fossil fuel industry, it really is a win-win situation. So hydrogen is pushed by the fossil fuel industry either to delay decarbonization, in which case they win, So the promise of future hydrogen delays electrification now, which would lead to decarbonization now. And decarbonization now would be bad for the fossil fuel industry because it would mean that they would earn less revenue, right? And more important than that, it would mean that their assets in the ground that their shareholders currently think have value, would turn into liabilities in a lot of cases. I mean, if you can't burn natural gas, what else are you gonna do with it? To the fossil fuel industry, it's, well, we can make hydrogen from it. Okay, well, what are you gonna do with the CO2? Oh, we can bury it, Yeah, we call it blue hydrogen, right? And the challenge, of course, with this blue hydrogen business, is that it's much easier and much cheaper to make very blackish blue bruise coloured hydrogen than it is to make really truly blue coloured hydrogen, you know. The CCS the carbon capture and storage is expensive we know what it costs, we know how difficult it is to do, we've got projects doing this at scale, honestly there's a big one called Shell Quest in Canada that I'm quite familiar with, we know what it costs, it costs a lot of money even to do the easy stuff, the easy CO2 and of course they always forget about the methane leakage and the methane on the 20-year time horizon has 86 times the global warming potential of CO2. So a little bit of methane leakage goes a long way. And if you do something wasteful like convert natural gas into hydrogen and then use some of the natural gas's energy to bury the CO2 that is produced at the same time, you're generating a lot more methane leakage, which is leading to a lot more global warming potential. So this blue hydrogen is really quite blackish blue, bruise-colored stuff. But you see, if you're let's say you're a natural gas distribution utility, if you don't have natural gas to sell because decarbonization requires that product to go away, you have to sell something, right? Otherwise, you have to go out of business and going out of business is hard for people to accept. So, of course, you're going to sell hydrogen, right? It's the, uh, hydrogen must be the future. And we've got all these pipes in the ground and all this infrastructure. It would be a shame to let that go to waste, right? But you see, this is a sunk cost fallacy you know, when you look at it in detail, and I've looked at it in detail, putting hydrogen into the natural gas pipelines is a really bad idea. Like, it's a really, really bad idea. It's not just very expensive, it's foolhardy. I mean, it serves a very useful purpose to the fossil fuel industry. It gives their investors the illusion for a time that their natural gas assets have value in a decarbonized future, whereas they don't—they're actually liabilities. And you know, if you're you're the head of Shell or BP or one of those big companies, you know, Reliance or whoever you know, on the world stage, you don't want your investors to think that your natural gas assets are liabilities. You you want them to keep thinking they're assets because that way you're you keep being willing to hold their shares. So there's the problem. It's, it's a win-win for the fossil fuel industry. And it's not really a tool in earnest for decarbonization of much of anything, really.
0: I think we have to explain a bit what you've just said for the laymen's like me. You've mentioned a lot of colors. And please jump in to correct me whenever I say something stupid. So you've explained us how gray is actually black. Gray is supposed to be hydrogen made from fossil fuels, aka gas, through steam methane reforming. Let's call it black. As next on my list, I have brown, which is made from coal gasification, and you just explained how that's blacker than black. So now we have black and blacker than black, and that replaces gray and brown. What you're now adding with blue is doing exactly the same than gray, but now instead of venting the carbon gas off to the birds, you capture it and you put it somewhere for storage. So gray with carbon capture becomes blue. And then we have green, Purple and pink, which are made through electrolysis of water, green from renewable energy, and purple and pink from nuclear energy.
2: Really, there's only two kinds of hydrogen in the world. There's the kind that you can buy, which is 98.7% derived from fossils without carbon capture. And then there's byproduct hydrogen. 1.3% is made as a byproduct of electrolysis uh, uh, to make chloralkali chemicals. And that's, it's not really, in fact, the chloralkali industry spends a lot of money to avoid making hydrogen because it costs them money. So they, they don't want to make hydrogen, but in order to run their business, they have to. So about a third of this byproduct hydrogen you can claim was made from renewable electricity because about a third of the electricity in the world is renewable or nuclear, no emissions. So there's really only black hydrogen in the world right now. And then there's the potential to make these other colors, but really, ultimately, you're talking about low carbon hydrogen, potentially low carbon hydrogen, and hydrogen as it is, which is really high carbon, right? So low carbon hydrogen, if you make hydrogen by electrolyzing water using wind and solar, that's quite low carbon. If you use electricity from nuclear, well, you're wasting nuclear electricity, because nuclear electricity is dispatchable and perfect replacement. For electricity on the grid, that might be made from burning fossils so it'd be much better to use your nuclear electricity to supply people with electricity you know it's not like nuclear plants that are in remote locations where they can't get their electricity to market they're built only where there are people to consume it so wasting nuclear electricity to make hydrogen is really questionable so i don't believe in this pink stuff it doesn't make any sense and the blue stuff this carbon capture and storage as i mentioned if you want to do a decent job of carbon capture and storage from hydrogen production, you need to do things differently than the way we make hydrogen right now. Right now we make a lot of hydrogen by steam methane reforming, and that process involves a big furnace, and about a third of the gas that you feed to the process goes to the furnace to keep the furnace hot, and that's where the the uh, furnace tubes are that contain the catalyst and the endothermic, you know, heat absorbing reactions that make hydrogen out of water and methane happen in those tubes. And what comes out the back end of that process is a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. And you shift the carbon monoxide to make more carbon dioxide and hydrogen. But in the end, you you get a a lot of carbon dioxide. About half the carbon dioxide is in the product hydrogen. And you separate that out. And that stuff, by and large, gets vented to the atmosphere. It's not used for anything, but you also get some streams that have a little bit of these contaminant molecules in it, but a lot of hydrogen. And what you do is you feed that back to the tube furnace to recover its energy. So when you do the math, about half of the CO2 from steam methane reforming is easy to capture because it's at high pressure inside a mixture with with hydrogen. So it's easy to capture and, and then store, but about half of it comes out of the top of this furnace. And it's no different than the CO2 that might come out of a natural gas turbine. That stuff is hard to recover and expensive to recover and takes energy to recover. And it's true for about that half that comes out of the steam reformer. So if you want to make really blue hydrogen, you have to do something called autothermal reforming instead. And so there, what you do is instead of using the furnace, you, you make the fire inside the process. So you feed oxygen instead of air and you burn some methane inside the reactor to make the heat. And then uh, it goes over the catalyst and makes the hydrogen. And then now all of the CO2 comes out with the hydrogen. So you can capture it theoretically all. But in reality, you, you're going to lose some. So maybe 90% capture is possible. But you need brand new equipment. And and by the way, that the autothermal reforming, you need electricity to run the air separation unit to make the oxygen. You also need the capital to buy that equipment. And that process is less efficient at making hydrogen than steam methane reforming is. So you actually need to buy more gas so and you end up making more CO2 that you have to bury. And as far as this blue hydrogen, you'll never do it from coal ever because the cost of burying all that extra CO2 is way, way more then you will save by buying the cheaper fuel, you know, coal instead of natural gas. So forget about CCS for coal. Coal is dead as a doornail. It's finished.
0: So we have one color left on my list, which is turquoise.
2: This is a good one, honestly, but it's partial. So we have to be careful about this one in saying that it's good when it can be done in the right way, but it'll never be a major source of hydrogen. So the idea here is instead of trying to react the energy that's in methane to produce as much hydrogen as possible with either of those other two processes, steam methane reforming or autothermal reforming. What you do instead is you use an artificial heat source and you heat up the methane until it just falls apart. And when it falls apart, it makes carbon and it makes hydrogen. And so one of my clients, uh, former clients, is a company called Monolith, and they've actually commercialized this process. So what they do is they heat up uh, methane to very high temperatures using an electric plasma arc, and the electricity is supplied by a nuclear plant. And they end up making not just carbon, but a valuable form of carbon that's called reinforcing grade carbon black. So that's the stuff that's used in tires, for instance, and rubber goods in order to provide strength as well as UV resistance and other beneficial properties. And it's quite valuable. And it's normally made from heavy oil by a very dirty partial combustion process. So they're eliminating that dirty process. They're making a nice, high-quality product that the rubber market wants. And the byproduct is hydrogen, and they use that hydrogen to make ammonia. And they've planted their plant in the middle of Nebraska. And if you draw a hundred mile circle around their plant, hundred mile radius circle, you have about 40% of the users of ammonia in the United States within that circle. So this is a very good thing. They, what they've managed to do is they managed to decarbonize carbon black production and decarbonize hydrogen production for the purpose of making ammonia, which is something we need, right, for agriculture and they've done that in a way where they make money despite the fact that they have no carbon taxes in the United States. So if the carbon taxes come, they're going to be even better. They're going to make even more money. So this is really wonderful, okay? But let's do the math. So remember the math experiment we did? We said we needed 90 million tons of hydrogen in the future, right? Post-decarbonization. If we're going to make that from let's say we we find uh, r- renewable electricity to supply the energy that you need to run this kind of process. And we're going to pyrolyze methane to make the 90 million tons of uh, hydrogen. Well, we're going to make 270 million tons of carbon. And that's 10 times the world market for both carbon black and graphite combined. So 90% of that carbon will have to be landfilled in kind of reverse coal mines. You know, where we find a hole in the ground and we fill it up with coal and then cover it up again, you know. And uh, it's a little hard to imagine how throwing away half of the energy and three quarters of the mass of your feed is going to make money. Now, if you can sell it as a valuable product, it makes good sense, right? So, again, this turquoise hydrogen, which is made by pyrolysis of methane, is a good process, low CO2 emissions fairly low methane leakage, which can always be made better. It makes hydrogen, but it's only really a good process if it makes a carbon product that you can sell. And if it doesn't, it's, I don't know, maybe it's easier to bury carbon than it is to bury CO2, but to throw away half the energy and three quarters of the mass in the form of a waste product that you have to pay someone to take away. I don't know. It seems hard to imagine how that's going to make money.
0: That's because you're trying to replace the entire amount. But if we say Let's go with one fourth of your current use. Then we still have approximately the right output for both carbon black and graphite.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so you could make nine million tons of the ninety and supply all of the carbon black and all of the graphite needs on Earth, and that would match, right?
0: So we solved ten percent of the problem.
2: But it's only one-tenth of them. I mean, every problem is solved in slices, right? We don't make all the hydrogen in the world the same way. We make it this way and that way in different places in different parts of the world, depending on the economics. So if we can make 10% of the hydrogen that we need by a process that, that makes carbon black and graphite as a byproduct, that's good. What we don't want to make is more carbon black and graphite or or other carbon products that are waste materials. That would be foolish.
0: So you've mentioned one of Turquoise hydrogen technologies and projects. Within my research for that discussion, I came across a process from an Australian company called HAZER. It's a process developed by a university in Australia, which was then outsourced and incorporated into HAZER. And actually, they locate that on a wastewater treatment plant. So you see, we are back to this wastewater treatment plant. Yeah,
2: I'm well aware of, of of Hazer. Hazer's problem is that they're not making a valuable form of carbon.
0: They do graphite, right?
2: Well, they make graphite, but they have no way to get the graphite off of their catalyst, so they don't really make graphite. Now, maybe that's changed. I, I could be wrong. I mean, I'm I'm not in the middle of their technology, and I'm sure there's lots of secrets, but you know, assuming that they can make graphite that they can sell, that would be great. But the trouble is, if you think about even a very large wastewater treatment plant, it's not making very much methane. And if it's not making very much methane, it can't make very much hydrogen or very much graphite. And so the size of the plant that you end up building will be small. And the resulting cost of the products, whether they be graphite or hydrogen, will be high. Right. This is this is the fundamental problem that that and if you make hydrogen somewhere, you have to distribute it. You have to have it. You have to use it in something either right on the site or you have to distribute it somewhere. And the infrastructure to distribute hydrogen from lots of comparatively small sources like, say, wastewater treatment plants all over. It doesn't exist. It would have to be built. You can't use the natural gas infrastructure for that purpose. So you're kind of stuck with a product that maybe is valuable in theory, but in in reality, it's not valuable that you can't monetize it.
0: The graphite, it's easy, it's dense and you can ship it. Talking of hazer, you would probably not like it, but if I'm right, their intended output is to use hydrogen in a fuel cell because utilities have heavy vehicles that could be powered with hydrogen. If
2: that's the case, why not skip all of this complicated technology, burn the CO2 burn the methane, make electricity by a much, much cheaper process that's pretty much as efficient as the fuel cell, but without the conversion technology in the middle that throws away half the energy. You know, what are you getting? You're getting a little bit of decarbonization if you bury the carbon product or you use that carbon product in some durable thing that's never burned in the future, right? So it's not really doing much to my mind. I think biogas is really valuable. I think we should use biogas because we've got the infrastructure to distribute it, right? We have the natural gas infrastructure. So if you have excess of biogas somewhere, you should use it and yet we have crazy people that want to make hydrogen out of it because they think hydrogen is sexy for some reason or another right and then on the other side you have people that are thinking they're going to have a giant wind farm somewhere right and there's no not enough use of electricity to pay for that wind farm so what do they want to do they want to make hydrogen from it but then they go oh now i've got a problem i have to get this hydrogen to people that need it. And that's hard because it's a bulky molecule and transportation infrastructure doesn't exist. And it's very expensive. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll capture CO2 from somewhere and I'll react the CO2 with hydrogen to make methane. And then I can put it in the natural gas infrastructure. You see? So one of those two groups of people must be wrong, you know, or both. I think we need a lot of biogas in the future. I think all the biogas we can make, we could definitely put to use to replace things that can't be easily electrified, like cement production and various other things. And whatever excess we have, we can store for the dunkelflauta conditions that are happening in the cold parts of the world, like where I live. A couple weeks a year, there's no wind and the solar panels are covered with snow. And uh, what are you going to do? You have to burn some fuel. Otherwise, you're going to freeze to death, right? But that's only a couple weeks a year. So, maybe you could store a whole year's worth of methane in the existing natural gas infrastructure and use that for the Kultankelflaute instead of fooling around with uh, making hydrogen. It makes more sense to me than making hydrogen does.
0: I think I'm starting to get the bigger scene, but let me stay on my wastewater treatment plant for a minute. Let's say I switch back to producing green hydrogen through an electrolysis. I'm now also producing a byproduct because I'm splitting H2O into h H2 2 and O2. So I'm also producing oxygen and oxygen can be a reactant for a wastewater treatment plant. So I could be using that oxygen as a feed gas for my ozone generators. I could be putting my oxygen into my biology and improve its yield. We'll switch gears a little bit. So either we're making hydrogen by
2: pyrolysis of methane that comes from anaerobic degradation, in which case you're not making any oxygen. Or you have excess electricity, which you could either use to put oxygen from the air into your wastewater treatment process, which is quite energy efficient. Or you could use to electrolyze water, which is very energy inefficient to make hydrogen. And then, okay, hey, presto, we've got some oxygen that we can use for some other secondary purpose. Most of the time, most electrolyzers vent their oxygen because the oxygen isn't worth the bother of producing at pressure, drying, purifying to remove the hydrogen contamination that it contains, and then storing and carrying off the site to somebody that needs it. So by all means, if you you had some use for hydrogen in the wastewater treatment plant, And that won't be running a fuel cell, by the way, because that would be nuts, right? If you're using electricity to make hydrogen, you're not going to then use the hydrogen to run a fuel cell. You've just created a very inefficient perpetual motion machine there. But, you know, if you had some excess electricity, it would make a lot more sense to just use it to take oxygen from the air and use that. That's going to take a lot less energy than it is to electrolyze water to make oxygen. Unless you have some Real purpose for the hydrogen.
0: So I'm going back to this real purpose because we've solved together, see how we made a big progress towards that. We solved 10% of the problem because I stand on my 10%, which is we take this turquoise hydrogen and we use it to the maximum output we can have in carbon black and graphite. So 10% of the problem is solved. Okay, we have 90% of the problem left. If we want to keep feeding humanity in a carbon neutral world with the Haber-Bosch process and all the other appliances that we've cited at the beginning of this discussion, how do we do?
2: So almost half of that 90 is 40. And that's the 40 that's used to make ammonia. And what do we do there? We make all of that ammonia in those places in the world I talked about before. We make it in Chile. We make it in Australia because we can ship ammonia. We can't ship hydrogen in ships. Okay. So that's half the problem taken care of. And then eh, let's say we do the turquoise hydrogen, we we take care of another 10%. So we've got 60% taken care of the remaining 40%. How do we do it? Well, we either, you know, a lot of that stuff is being used for things like methanol and direct reduction of iron. We can do those in Australia and Chile too, because we can ship methanol and we can ship steel right? Or, or iron, uh, hot briquetted iron. So we would do all of those things in those places in the world that are rich in high capacity factor renewables. So guess what? The Chileans and the Australians, maybe <laughs> if, if we're dreaming, the Namibians get really rich in the future as a result of their access to clean renewable energy. What better thing could you want? You know, it sounds great. And that leaves only a little bit left that kind of has to be produced closer to where it's used. And that we can probably do just not very efficiently, cost efficiently by using local renewables. You know, So honestly, I think taking care of the decarbonization of hydrogen, it's just one of many parts of the puzzle, but it's not impossible to imagine us doing it. What's impossible for me to imagine us doing is making gargantuan quantities of excess green hydrogen that we then use as a transport or heating fuel, right? That's the part that doesn't make sense to me. And the reason it doesn't make sense to me is that it shouldn't make sense to anybody, honestly. Again, it's the result of hopium, in my opinion, as opposed to an honest, dispassionate review of the thermodynamics and the properties of hydrogen and the energetics. There are better solutions that cost less. So we're going to use those instead.
0: Talking of opium and of how much it should not make sense for anybody, to quote you, neither Chile nor Australia or Namibia are in the European Union.
2: That's right, but they have trade relationships with them. So,
0: And nevertheless, the European Union plans to invest 400 billion euros into the hydrogen economy. So does that mean that none of them ever heard of thermodynamics or that among your 2 million interactions on LinkedIn last year, nobody was working for the European Union? What's the deal there?
2: Deal is, it's actually, it's funny that you speak about the European Union. I, honestly, I think that the European Union and the UK together, they're tied for the most rampant uh, hydrogen hopium addiction in the world. But the places that have the most justification for such an addiction are not in Europe or the UK. They're South Korea and Japan. Okay. Now, if you look at Europe and the UK, I mean, the UK has already almost decarbonized its electricity grid. That's shocking. If you told me 10 years ago that the UK by today would have almost decarbonized their electricity grid, I would have told you you were lying. There was no likelihood of that. They're going to burn coal until the cows come home. And no, they they managed to do it, you know. But South Korea and Japan are different animals, okay? So they have the problem that they don't like their neighbors, (laughs) their land neighbors so much. They have bad relationships with their land neighbors. They don't trust them. And they're also very energy-hungry, very large populations, right, with a lot of heavy industry in both the, in both countries. And they're totally dependent on fossil energy right now. So guess who's pushing the hydrogen hyperbole for hydrogen as a transport fuel? It's the Japanese and the Koreans. I mean, you can understand why. Because to them, they really don't want to import electricity via High voltage DC from people that might put their foot on the cable and kind of squeeze them anytime that they don't like their politics or whatever's going on. They'd like to import by ship from anybody that will sell them a product, just like they do with you know natural gas, uh, you know LNG and and petroleum right now. They that, they like that, and of course coal and both big burners of coal too. So they like that, but they think that in the future maybe we won't be able to do that because we'll get serious about decarbonization, right? So they want to recreate that economic model that they have just with a different fuel. And that's intellectually very simple. And the fossil fuel industry is going, yeah, 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 that's the thing. That's what we want you to do, because otherwise we're not going to be supplying you anything. But the people that are sitting there in Japan and Korea that are talking about this, I don't think that they've got a calculator in hand. They haven't run the numbers. This is a nice little thought experiment. So if you go to the United States on the Gulf Coast, where the big chemical plants and refineries are, there's this facility, well, not really a facility, I guess it's a, it's a price metric that they call the Henry Hub cost of natural gas. So this is a raw wholesale natural gas cost, kind of like the Brent barrel of oil or, or the, the West Texas Intermediate barrel of oil. These are metrics that are used in order to track the cost of a commodity. And natural gas, it fluctuates. And of course, it's quite high in Europe right now. Um, It went up and now it's coming back down again. And it fluctuates seasonally and so on. But average, 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 the Henry Hub cost of natural gas is about $3.50 per million BTUs. So that's a measure of energy. It's like joules, right? $3.50 per million BTUs. If you convert that $3.50 Per million BTU natural gas to hydrogen, it costs about a wholesale. Okay, the, the hydrogen that you produce, of which about a, a third of that cost is the cost of gas, and two thirds is the cost of the other O and M and capital. Okay, so at a per kilogram, that hydrogen now costs eleven dollars per million BTUs. It's three times as expensive. <laughs> just by making hydrogen out of it now that's not capturing any co2 or anything that's just making hydrogen out of it so now when we look at that's a dollar 50 a kilogram and the green hydrogen people are hyperventilating about maybe one day in 2040 or 2050 we can make hydrogen for a dollar 50 a kilogram and i don't even believe them i i, I think they're delusional i think they'll have a very very hard time getting to those kinds of costs largely because it would take hundreds of billions of dollars of public subsidy to buy really very much more expensive hydrogen than that in order to get to the scale necessary to drive the cost down to those little levels. But let's set set that aside for a moment. Green hydrogen is costing a multiple of the cost of black hydrogen, and black hydrogen is costing a multiple of the cost of natural gas. So imagine that you're Japan or Korea and you have a lot of heavy industry and your economic competitors get to use electricity directly. Whereas you have to use somebody else's electricity that's been partially converted to hydrogen and then into ammonia to ship to you for you to break the ammonia back down into hydrogen again so that you can use it to make electricity or heat or whatever. What kind of car you drive doesn't matter. Your industry's bankrupt. <laughs> Your energy cost per joule is five times that of your economic competitors. So any energy-intensive process is not going to be done in the future in Japan or South Korea because you couldn't afford to do it, right? So, see, there's the thing. I think a lot of this thinking is just not based in, you know, basic engineering economics. You have to think about it a little bit more carefully. And when you do, you'll realize that direct electrification just makes an awful lot more sense, you know? I know people have this box on their head that if you want to make heat, the best way to make heat is burning stuff, right? And that makes sense when all your energy is coming from stuff that you burn. You know, you make electricity by burning stuff, you make heat by burning stuff. It makes It's crazy to make electricity by burning stuff and then using use that electricity to make heat, right? There's too many steps and it costs you too much money. So you don't do that. Well, in the future, we're gonna be making electricity. So if we want heat, we'll make it from electricity. <laughs> We're not going to make a molecule from it and then burn that to make it that's, because that's too many steps. and It's going to be too expensive. So you see, we have an optimized thinking for the fossil fuel world and, and we're, we're trying to apply it to the decarbonized future and we're getting wrong conclusions and it's going to cost a lot of money that's just going to be burned up and wasted and it's not going to help us decarbonize. And that's my worry.
0: I have a last question for you in this deep dive, which will require some imagination, Let's say we go to a steampunk alternative universe. In that steampunk universe, electricity didn't win. There is no battery and we're starting from scratch. And so far, the biggest thing to power all of our stuff is still steam. And so we're really restarting the race from zero. And we have two candidates for that decarbonized future world. We have batteries and we have hydrogen. Batteries, as I said, have to restart from scratch, so they don't have the proxy of people having iPhones and hence having batteries and be ready to pay quite a lot to build the scale. So we're really starting from zero. There is no scale effect. Under those conditions, does hydrogen stand a chance against battery? Or if we redo the race, batteries win again?
2: If the source energy is electricity, then batteries still win. Because there is a path to scale for batteries and their greater efficiency pays for the path to scale. Okay. And hydrogen's problem is it's the opposite. Hydrogen is a way to take, well, actually, there's your trouble is that once you've made hydrogen, your problems are just beginning because, yeah, you have hydrogen. And if you need the hydrogen where you've made it, you could have just used electricity and cut out the middleman. So the whole idea behind hydrogen is as a means to transport or store electricity. And if I told you that I had this uh, special bucket, you know, and I'm I'm going to fill it up with my nice homemade cider for you. And if I put it in one bucket, when you get it to your house, 90% of the cider will still be there. And if I put it in another bucket, only a third of the cider will be there. Which bucket are you going to choose? (laughs) You're paying the same for the cider, right? I don't care how much you drink. I, I only care how much I pour into your bucket. Uh, you want to choose a bucket that's easier to carry, but it, it only has a third as much in it when you get it, get it home. It's really not a good economic proposition, is it? And so there's your fundamental issue. The thing about batteries, though, is that batteries are not the be-all and end-all. You know, batteries are a very important tool. They're the thing that's going to help us with mobility, like mobile applications for energy. Like most of transport will be handled by batteries. But they're not the be-all and end-all. We need a lot of other technologies in there as well. And fundamentally, we need more important than any of this. What we need is the decarbonization policy the carbon taxes, and the emission bans that signal to people, hey, all of your choices are valid, but some choices generate a lot of fossil CO2 in the atmosphere, and they're going to be very expensive choices. So you shouldn't make them unless you don't really have an alternative. And once we've applied that high carbon tax for a long time, we'll trim away the easy to substitute stuff, which by the way, should be our focus. People talk about hydrogen for hard to decarbonize sectors. Why would we focus on hard to decarbonize sectors when there are easy ones, <laughs> right? When I go to an apple tree, I'm picking the apples that are close to the ground before I go and get the ladder. That's just human nature, right? And why are we not doing that with energy and decarbonization? I don't understand. It makes no sense to me, except if your effort is really to delay doing anything, then I understand perfectly. So this focus on hard to decarbonize sectors is really an attempt to delay decarbonization, because what we should be doing is pursuing the easy-to-decarbonize sectors
0: now. I don't want to re-sidetrack you, but to me, there's a clear link with the psychology of humans. I mean, we love stories, and we love something which we can really grasp. And it's so beautiful as a story, this electricity which is in excess, and nobody knows what to do with it. And, oh, we can do an electrolysis, and the byproduct, when you burn hydrogen again in a fuel cell, the byproduct is water. What's not to love about that? So that sounds so perfect. That is a cool story. So I get why people buy it. The trouble is that you're skipping a lot of steps,
2: right? So first of all, it it makes water, but it makes NOx when you burn it in air. The uh, Only time it doesn't make NOx is when you burn it in a fuel cell at low temperature over a catalyst. So that's misstated. If you burn hydrogen in your cooker at home, you're going to be making so much NOx that you're going to give yourself asthma. I mean, it's it's not a good thing to burn in your house for sure. It's possible on big engines, for instance, to put an SCR catalyst on there to take care of the NOx. But, but in, on a cooker or other, you know, your home boiler, you're not going to have an SCR. You're going to make a lot more NOx. So there's the first lie in the, in the story. It's a nice story, but it's a story that's told this way, with head nodding, yes. Now, what you need is me, okay? Because I tell you this other story with head nodding no. And you need both stories in order to understand what's going on, right? Otherwise, you have a fairy tale. You don't have a story.
0: I think that makes a perfect conclusion for this deep dive. Thanks a lot.
2: You're very welcome. And and I've made a lot of assertions in our discussion today that make me, it sounds like I'm stating things as if they're fact without providing any backup. I encourage people to go to my LinkedIn profile or to SpitfireResearch.com, where I have a lot of my articles republished. Go there and visit and take a look at the articles because I provide the references and the calculations. And I, I have long discussions with very smart people who have forgotten more about certain topics than I'll ever know. And they help me refine my position. And when I'm wrong, I correct it, you know, because I'm human being, I'm often wrong. But I, I use the scientific principle of having people review and comment and go back and forth with the facts until we agree what makes sense. And then I revise my opinion to match the data. And when new data comes along, if my opinion needs to change, it changes. So go there, visit those resources, listen to my podcasts and review my articles and so on. And you'll get a sense that the points that I'm making, they're not infallible, but they're based in something. They're not just made up. And it's not that I hate hydrogen. I love hydrogen. Hydrogen is amazing. It's just a tool that needs to be used for the right purposes, and burning it as a fuel is not the
0: right purpose for it. For anyone listening and being curious right now, if you look at the episode notes, you'll find my personal selection of Paul's articles, you'll see it's pretty easy from those ones to navigate to the other ones, and then it's like a rabbit hole. You start and you don't really know where you're stopping. I have a last section to wrap things up, which is the rapid fire questions.
1: It's time for the rapid fire questions.
0: In this last section, I'll raise you short questions, which you can answer with short answers, of course. And you'll see that I'm still the one which is sidetracking all the time. My first question is what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why?
2: Uh, in recent days, I've been helping through Spitfire a client who is from the very first principles and ground up looking at how to make hydrogen production by electrolysis as cost effective as possible. And I, I find that very exciting because, as I mentioned, I think we have a huge need for green hydrogen just not to waste it as a fuel. The other one is more a past triumph, and that's that uh, monolith project. So I love the fact that they were commercially successful, that they just got a billion dollar loan from the US DOE and that they're making a huge benefit to decarbonization without even the wisdom on the part of the United States to put in place carbon taxes. That's just amazing, but it's kind of, uh, it's rare. It's a purple squirrel type project. I don't think there are going to be too many like that.
0: Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way?
2: One thing that I've learned the hard way, oh my goodness, I learned the hard way that I always encountered my nature, my personality as a detriment to my ability to to do business, that it always got in the way. And now I'm finding that when I correctly deploy my effort, that my personality is actually an asset to business. I I wish I learned that uh, sooner, but I'll add one more. And this one I learned early, and it was wonderful. Okay, When I started, I was working for a startup company, and they were trying their best to make money. But young engineers like myself that were working there, they didn't give us any shares or any opportunity to have any ownership in the company. We were just working there and getting a salary, but man, we were working a lot. I was working 70 hour weeks for these guys because if my design tests weren't done, they weren't selling anything, you know? Well, they came on hard times and they cut me down to four days per week And we had this wonderful government program at the time that they would pay half of your salary. The government would pay half of your salary, the the decrease in your salary as a result of a layoff if the company would commit to keeping you over the longer term. So my hours per week went from 70 to 32 because there was no way I was going to work any overtime if they weren't even going to pay me my full salary. My pay dropped by 10%. The, amount, the number of hours in the week that I worked dropped by more than 50%. And I had a full day off every week to look for another job. And I realized the light bulb went off over top of my head. And I went, hmm, working for free for for-profit companies is a really bad strategy. I'm never <laughs> going to do it again. And from that day until now, I have never worked a single hour of uncompensated overtime. I've always either earned a piece of ownership or a bonus or time off or something of value to me in return for every hour that I've worked. And oh, what a huge thing it was to learn uh, so early in my career that workaholism is a bad thing and you don't want to do it. And making, if you're going to donate your time, donate it to a charity or something noble, not to people that are earning profit from your labor.
0: Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years?
2: Uh, well, I hope to not be doing any job beyond maybe my private consulting in 10 years, but I would say that... Probably the better way to put that, the more profound way to put that is that back before March of uh, 2020, I was spending 122 kilometers on the road every day, and that was two and a half hours every day, four days a week. So 10 hours a week driving to and from an office where I did exactly the same job that I'm doing now without driving. And I've been to the office now three days out of uh, that whole period of time until now. And I had fought uh, for quite a long time to get one day per week working from home. And it was always viewed with displeasure, but I found it very useful because I found I could focus and concentrate. And, and uh, I worked better at things like reading technical papers or reviewing or, or uh, checking or things that required concentration. I could do it better at home where there were fewer distractions than I could in a cubicle in an office. Well, I went seamlessly from working one day a week at home to working every day a week at home and uh, got 10 hours of my life per week back again. It was wonderful. So yeah, I'm hoping that that change will uh, still be in place in 10 years. I hope I'm not driving anywhere uh, to, to work in 10 years.
0: I fully subscribe to that one. I somehow hope exactly the same. I have two questions for the former water professional in you. And the first is, what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector if apparently it's not hydrogen anymore?
2: Oh, you know, I'm terrible at that sort of thing. I I can tell you what isn't the future much easier than I can tell you what is the future. I think water is, you know, an underappreciated resource. It's, It's my hope that we get smarter about how we use it and that we waste less of it. But honestly, I think that water ultimately, largely, it's a dichotomy in that it's extremely valuable to, you know, absolutely necessary to human life. And at the same time, it's a very low value commodity that's produced from solar energy and it's really stored solar energy. So I think that tendency will continue in in the world and, and that we'll continue to experience pressure related to people consuming too much water uh, needlessly and not being really happy with being forced to do things more sensibly. So unfortunately, that's the way I see it. But I don't see any magic technology coming that's going to suddenly turn wastewater into clean water or, you know, be able to do it more efficiently or more effectively using sunlight or something. You know, back in my early days, that's what we were doing. We were trying to use sunlight to treat water. And then we realized, no, sunlight's... Availability factor is only 16%. So we have to use artificial lights to do that. And um, now we were consuming electricity rather than using sunlight. But anyway, it's
0: the way it worked out. Reality sunk in. Well, you told me that in the early days of your career, when you were working with the water industry, you were doing this AOP based on solar, if I get right what you're explaining now. I had an interview on that microphone with Fadjar Mushtak from a startup called Oxile. And they are turning exactly that into a promising process.
2: We'd say this is an object lesson about technology development and research and development and the popularization of science and funding and all these things. Titanium dioxide photolysis using visible or ultraviolet light has been studied extensively by hundreds and hundreds of research groups all over the world and billions of dollars have been consumed on it, and it has no commercial applications other than self-cleaning surfaces. (laughs) None. You see, it rung two bells in the minds of the funding agencies, solar and environmental. And it was fun research, you know. But I mean, within five minutes, speaking with a brilliant photochemist, a guy named Ali Amiri, who I used to work with, it was quite clear what was wrong with titanium dioxide and why it would never be a commercial process for industrial or, or even pretreatment of water, and why that could not change, why it couldn't be made differently. And, uh, you know, Ali was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was the thing is, he was right presciently 30 years ago, you know. And, and now we can say, you, you know what? Ali wasn't just suspecting that
0: he was right; he was actually right. <laughs> so once you're done fighting opium on hydrogen, you can start fighting opium on titanium dioxide.
2: <laughs> it's amazing how much money was wasted on the opium of of uh, anatase uh, TiOx. You know, it, it just was crazy. And here we were doing homogeneous photochemical technology that actually made a meaningful difference, and it didn't. Make money because our company made foolish commercial decisions. It, w- it wasn't because the technology didn't have a promise, and those those patents have expired, <laughs> so they're free to ever, for everybody to use now. Uh, so yeah, it's, anyway, it was a fascinating experience to have as a young engineer.
0: Well, it's been really a blast discussing all of this matter with you, Paul. So thanks, thanks a lot for accepting my invitation. If I was to look for a guest equally brilliant as you who would you recommend me to invite as soon as possible on that microphone?
2: I would say that there are two people that I would recommend. Well, in in fact, three. So one of them is a guy who is uh, very knowledgeable about lithium and lithium production. His name is Alex Grant. And Alex is young and smart as a whip and extremely effective as a communicator and totally unafraid to tell the truth as he sees it so he's a great guy to to talk to and uh so for instance he knows a lot about trying to take lithium out of unconventional resources like geothermal brines and it's going to be very interesting there's some very prominent projects all over the world that he's involved with that uh that are going to do just that another guy is a guy in australia named john Poljak, and john is uh, his thing he has a site called key numbers and what john specializes in is making little models of problems so that you can run the numbers yourself and get visual rapid visual feedback on what's making the thing tick you know so for instance john's got these great resources for the purpose of uh, looking at the economics of making hydrogen john would be a great guy to talk to and then the last one is kind of a polyglot guy who knows a lot about a lot of different things is a very interesting thinker uh, is a guy named Michael Barnard. And he's in uh, Western Canada in Vancouver. And Michael knows a lot about energy. And his company is called TFIE, which stands for the future is electric. And on that, Michael and I 100% agree. So those are the people that I would talk to. And one last guy, a guy named Paul Bryan, who recently left LinkedIn and discussed, unfortunately, Uh, he's a former VP of Chevron and a champion of biofuels, extremely knowledgeable chemical engineer, brilliant guy, very uh, incisive thinker. And um, I think he'd be a really good guy to talk to as well.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Paul. I hope that you weren't too bothered by my muggle questions about hydrogen.
2: Not at all. This is the whole point. My job is to try to fill in that gap between the technical papers and the science popularist stuff that just gives the very lightest kind of skim of, of information. I try to fill in that piece in the middle, but to do it in a way that gets the point across, is technically accurate, but still approachable. So I hope I've accomplished that and I've enjoyed your questions. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.